Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is a podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old school basketball to a new school audience. And today we bring you a story of the player boycott of the 1964 NBA All-Star Game. The league's players, as a group, had been asking for a pension fund to be set up by the owners to help take care of retired players for all of their years of service to the league. A pension exists today, as well as other benefits, like medical benefits for retired players. These types of programs exist for retired players in all of the major professional sports leagues in the United States, but they did not always exist. And that is what this story is about. The NBA players, as I mentioned, had been asking for a pension fund for retired players, and the owners kept putting it off. They would say that the topic could be discussed during off-season negotiations, but then there was always an excuse to not discuss it. Or, if they did discuss it, the owners would then say that they needed to go back and hash it out as a group, and that they would return to the players with a response. It was all just stall tactics, because the owners did not want to provide additional benefits to the players. Every benefit that the owners provide to the players means money that they do not get to keep for themselves. Back in the 1960s, the NBA was not the multi-billion dollar enterprise that it is today. The league did not have a national TV contract. They were not yet selling merchandise like jerseys, t-shirts, and hats. All of that was still in the future. The primary revenue source for the NBA was ticket sales. In 1964, the average salary of an NBA player was $8,000 per season. In 2022, that would be the equivalent of $75,000 per year. Now that is a solid middle-class salary, but nowhere near the millions upon millions that players earn today. Other than the superstars, most NBA players back then had summer jobs to help make ends meet. Now could you imagine today trying to buy a new home and your real estate agent is Donovan Mitchell or going to have your taxes done and the agent across the desk is Tobias Harris? That's what it was like in the 1960s for NBA players. They made just regular salaries, lived in regular houses, and drove reliable and modest cars. The players of that day also had no pension plan no per diem money, and no health benefits of any kind. In other words, they had to pay for their own meals while they were on the road for the team. They also had no health benefits if they got injured. They had to pay for medical treatment out of their own pocket. That kind of stuff is pretty standard today for any American employee. And if that employee also travels for business, the employer pays for their travel expenses and provides a set amount of money to be used for meals each day. But. That was not the NBA of 1964. The players had become fed up with the owners. In addition to the request for a pension plan to be put together, the players were also asking for trainers to be provided for every game. They wanted the league to stop scheduling teams to play on a Sunday afternoon if they had just played on Saturday night. They felt that that was too quick of a turnaround. 
ultimately, what they really wanted was for acknowledgement of their union. The National Basketball Players Association, or NBPA, had existed since 1954, but the owners refused to negotiate with the players union for a decade. That meant that each player was on his own to negotiate the best contract he could get. That also means that the NBA owners had the negotiating advantage over the players. There was no such thing as free agency back then. If a player's contract ended, the player could not just sign a new contract with another team. The player was tied to the original team at the team's discretion. The team held the player's rights forever, even if there was no contract in place. So, if the player wanted to sign with another team, and that team wanted that player badly enough, the new team would have to compensate the former team with some combination of draft picks or role players. So, let me use a modern, hypothetical example to help explain how things worked back then. Let's say, again, hypothetically, that Blake Griffin's contract with the Brooklyn Nets ended and he wanted to sign with a new team. Well, basically, he would not be allowed to without the permission of the Brooklyn Nets, even though there is no more contract in effect. Griffin would not be allowed to go anywhere unless a new team could offer some sort of compensation to the Nets. Let's imagine that the Washington Wizards was the team that wanted to sign Griffin. They would have to give something to the Nets in order for the Nets to release Griffin's rights. The Wizards would have to come up with some offer that included a combination of draft picks and role players. Only when the Nets were satisfied with the compensation would the Nets release the rights to Griffin and allow him to sign with the Wizards as a free agent. So, you can imagine in a situation like that, the Nets had no reason to pay Griffin top dollar for his services. Since Griffin could go nowhere without their permission, they could sign Griffin for as little as they could get away with. Griffin would have no leverage in this situation. He would have to take whatever the Nets were offering or go get a regular job. Because back in the 1960s, overseas leagues were not a viable option. So this is what the average player had to deal with. The superstars like Oscar Robertson, Jerry West, Bill Russell, and Will Chamberlain were compensated quite well, even for the time. But the average role player was in a very tough situation. This is the background that led to the player boycott at the 1964 NBA All-Star Game. Now this is a good place to take a break, and I'll be right back with what happened in Boston at the 1964 All-Star Game. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome back and let us continue with our story. I just covered the conditions under which the average player had to negotiate their contract with their NBA teams. As a group, the players wanted to be recognized as a union and have a pension plan created to support the players in their retirement. The 1964 All-Star Game was scheduled for January 14, 1964 in the Boston Garden. It was a near blizzard outside as the snow was falling in bunches. The attendance for the game was 13,464, which was just a couple of hundred tickets short of a sellout. It was also the first All-Star game in league history to be televised nationally. This was huge for the league. This was the opportunity that would allow the entire country to be able to see the league's very best players battle it out. This was a chance for the league to land a long-term TV contract and increase the league's revenue. By the way, back then the players played the All-Star game for real. Both teams wanted to win very badly. The action was serious. They played the All-Star game like it was a finals game. The president of the Players Association was Tommy Heinsohn of the Celtics. 
after many phone calls with the other All-Stars, they decided that this game would be the perfect time to take a stand against the owners. The players for both All-Star teams decided that they would not play the game unless the owners acknowledged their union and put a pension in place, as well as meet a few other demands. The players had all arrived at the Boston Garden and went into the locker rooms where they put their plan into motion. Since this was going to be the first All-Star game to be broadcast on national television, the players knew that they had the leverage, and probably for the first time. This particular All-Star game was so important to the growth of the league that the players took advantage of the opportunity. Oscar Robertson was the vocal leader of the boycott, even though Heinsohn was the president of the union. And as the president of the players' union, it fell to Heinsohn to deliver the message formally to the owners. He went to the owners, all of whom were there for the game, and informed them that if they did not recognize the union and put a pension in place, they would not play the game. Looking back on this event that took place nearly 60 years ago, it seems ludicrous that the owners would not be willing to meet the demands of the players. Most of these requests were in the interest of protecting the health of the players. How could the owners not be on board with that? It seems obvious today that the owners have to do whatever they can to protect the health of the players, especially the superstars. But again, things were different back then. Now, what I am about to say next is not a defense of what the owners did, but rather an explanation from their point of view. Back in the 1960s, the team owners relied on their teams as a source of income. The owners fully intend to make money from their teams. I mean, wouldn't any owner of a company want to make money from the company they own? Of course they would. It was no different than owning a grocery store, or a car dealership, or an accounting firm. Like any owner of a company, you want to make as much money as you can from your own company. Today, the environment is totally different. In order to purchase an NBA team, one has to already be a billionaire, because that is how expensive it is to buy a team. And if one is already a billionaire, they do not need the team to be a source of income. They already have a primary source of income that made them a billionaire. Mark Cuban made his money in the tech industry before purchasing the Dallas Mavericks. Paul Allen made his money in the founding of Microsoft before buying the Portland Trailblazers. Steve Ballmer also made his money with Microsoft before buying the LA Clippers. Jerry Buss, my favorite owner of all time, made his money in real estate before buying the LA Lakers. James Dolan inherited the Knicks from his father who built the family fortune in the cable TV industry. So like I said, things are different today. By the way, Paul Allen and Dr. Jerry Buss are no longer with us, but their examples still hold up. They each made a pile of money in other businesses before becoming NBA owners. So let us get back to 1964. Bob Short, the owner of the Lakers, sent a security guard to the locker room where all of the players from both teams had gathered. The message that the security guard carried told the players that if they did not play the game, they would all be kicked out of the league and their careers would be over. Now just think about that for a moment. This is who was in that locker room. Oscar Robertson, Elgin Baylor, Jerry West, Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Hal Greer, Bob Pettit, Jerry Lucas, Sam Jones, Lenny Wilkins, and the rest of the All-Star players. All of the players that I just mentioned by name are all on the NBA 75 list. These were some of the greatest players of all time. The players knew that there was no way that the owners were going to kick all of them out of the league. These particular players were the reason the league even sold any tickets. Now, I'm not saying that they were not a little nervous. I mean, anyone would get nervous when their boss threatens them with being fired. 
But the players knew that without them, the league would go out of business, and in their hearts, the owners knew it too. But that did not stop them from threatening the players. Practically every one of the owners went to the locker room screaming and yelling that the players better get on that court and start warming up, but the players hung on and stayed together. At one point, the owners gave a verbal promise that if the players took the court, then they would promise to talk about a union and the pension plan over the following summer. Well, the players knew what that meant. It meant that the owners had no intention of talking about the union. It was just another stall tactic that had worked in the past, but was no longer going to work. Working with lawyer Larry Fleischer, the players had paperwork already drawn up and the owners just needed to sign them. With just minutes before the game was set to start, the owners gave in and officially recognized the players union and committed by way of contract to put in a pension plan for the retired players. The players would now be able to enter into collective bargaining with the owners for better conditions. Walter Kennedy, the commissioner of the NBA at the time, signed the papers on behalf of the owners. Now that the players got what they asked for, they hustled up to the court, warmed up for just a couple of minutes, and then put on one of the best all-star games ever. The players knew what was going on, and they knew that the entire nation was watching on television, and they needed to put on a show. Oscar Robertson, playing for the East, scored 26 points to lead all scorers and won the game MVP award. It was a big success for the players, the owners, and for the ABC television network, which was broadcasting the game. They realized that there was money to be made televising professional basketball, and that would eventually lead to new revenue streams for the league, which today pays the NBA billions of dollars a year in television rights. Six years later, Oscar Robertson would again draw the ire of the owners when he put his name as the lead plaintiff in an antitrust lawsuit against the owners in order to secure a free agency when a player's contract ended. But that is an episode for another day. Today, the president of the Players Union is CJ McCollum of the New Orleans Pelicans. He takes over starting this season from outgoing president Chris Paul, whose four-year term ended at the end of last season. The vice president of the union is Andre Iguodala from the Golden State Warriors. Further, each team elects a player to be the official team representative in union discussions. Usually, the representative is one of the older veterans on the team. Those 30 representatives meet with McCollum on regular conference calls to discuss union issues. The union then takes those issues to the owners, who are represented by the commissioner in any negotiations. Because of the willingness of those players back in 1964 to boycott an All-Star game, the players today get approximately 50% of all revenue that comes into the NBA. That is why today's superstar earns around $40 million per season. Back in 1964, you could have purchased the entire league 10 times over for that kind of money. So the players of today definitely owe a huge debt of gratitude to those All-Stars from 1964. Actually, the NFL football players and Major League Baseball players also owe something to those NBA players. Within three years of the basketball players getting their union recognized, the NFL Players Association and the Baseball Players Association were also recognized by their respective team owners. Every player that is currently on an NBA roster should seek out one of those old guys from 1964, shake their hand, and say thank you. That is the least that they can do. The minimum salary in 2022 for an NBA player is $925,000 US. 
That means you could be the worst player in the NBA and you still get $925,000 for the season. Like I said, the current players owe the 1964 All-Stars a huge debt of gratitude. So what those players did on that day in Boston in 1964 had an impact that still reverberates throughout North American sports and is still felt today. And I'm glad that we could take an episode to honor the stance that those players took. It was and is a huge moment in basketball history. Well, that is it for today. Join us next time when we bring you a profile on Dave Bing, the Man of Steel. He is a Hall of Famer from the Detroit Pistons and a member of the NBA 75 list. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts, as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.